Who invented scalping? Well, the answer, like much of history, is complicated. Scalping, or crudely cutting the crown of hair, skin included from a fallen enemy, is most often associated with the American Indians. So much so that many, even to this day, believe that the act originated in North America. Others assert that it was the Europeans who were the first to lift hair and that they brought the atrocious behavior with them to the New World. First off, let's just establish that scalping is absolutely not unique to the Americas. The remains of hunter-gatherers in both Denmark and Sweden, dating all the way back to the Stone Age, show signs of scalping. And the Greek historian Herodotus wrote of it in the year 440 BC, describing how the Scythians not only scalped their vanquished foes, but then used said trophies as napkins. As far as the English go, they ain't off the hook either. Harold Godwin, the Earl of Essex, was taking scalps as recently as the 11th century, hundreds of years before his descendants would embark upon the New World. And speaking of the New World, everyone from the British to the Dutch, the Spanish, Canadians, Americans, even Mexicans, were paying good money for scalp locks. Now, one might take this information and then assume that scalping was indeed introduced to the Native Americans by the European colonists. But that would not be correct. Not only did explorers observe the practice among the indigenous in the mid-1500s from Canada to Mexico, but many a pre-Columbian archaeological dig has turned up scalped noggins long before Columbus ever sailed the ocean blue. One of the more grisly discoveries comes from the Cow Creek Massacre site in present-day South Dakota. I got no idea which tribes were involved, but this particular fight took place sometime around the year 1350 and resulted in nearly 500 dead and mutilated. 90% of whom have markings on their skulls indicative of being scalped. And that's just one example. There are hundreds of other digs who produce similar results, including scalped skulls carbon dated back to the year 600 AD. It may be true that Native Americans were the first to lift hair in North America, but inquiring as to who first invented scalping is kind of like asking who invented the bow and arrow. I believe it's called multiple independent discovery or simultaneous invention the phenomenon where different people come up with the same idea without being aware of each other's work. The bow and arrow, the crossbow, the theory of evolution, the blast furnace, telephones, and even calculus were discovered or innovated by different people at different times in completely different locations. And apparently the same goes for scalping. After all, we people are, historically speaking, a pretty vicious species. And when two rival factions clash, there are sure to be more than a few body parts taken whether as trophies or simply as proof of death. And sometimes the scalp lock just happens to be the easiest to transport, especially if you don't have the luxury of wagons or some other sort of animal-drawn vehicle. After all, carrying a couple of scalps on your belt weighs a whole hell of a lot less than a few severed heads, right? There's even scalping in the Bible. Kind of. 1 Samuel 18.27, King James Version. Wherefore David arose and went, he and his men, and slew of the Philistines 200 men. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full tell to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. Now, why David was scalping peckers instead of top knots, I don't know. But I think you see the similarity, right? And this was in ancient Israel sometime around the year 1000 BCE. Now, there is an argument to be made that by the time the Europeans showed up in North America, they had largely forgotten the skill of removing hair from an enemy's head, and that they quickly relearned it from their new indigenous neighbors. And that may be the case. But boy, oh boy, did they hit the ground running. So much so that many theorize that it was the Europeans' wholesale embrace of scalping that helped spread the practice to tribes who had not previously partaken. 
So long story short, no, Europeans did not introduce scalping to the Native Americans. At least not the vast majority of them. Also, scalping was not unique to North America. As we now know, it occurred in ancient Europe, Central Asia, and even West Africa. Turns out scalping, much like stealing and killing and gossip and a multitude of other iniquities, is just a byproduct of being human. And there ain't one particular race or tribe on this planet that has the market cornered when it comes to brutality. Speaking of which, what follows is a first-hand account detailing just how brutal frontier warfare could be. And you're going to hear about the fine art of scalping from a man who was taught by one of the best. Or worst, depending on how you look at things. In this third installment of My 60 Years on the Plains, we'll follow William Hamilton and his merry band of fur traders to the Wind River country, where they have a rendezvous with the Blackfeet, a fight during which no mercy would be shown in a land and a time where none was expected. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. We continued on towards Little Wind River and crossed the most rugged and romantic country, whose lofty sky-piercing peaks ascended to and above the clouds. On the northwest were the Wind River Mountains, which are the main Rockies. To the eastward, the Bighorn Mountains, world-renowned in their isolated grandeur, the home of all noble games such as buffalo, elk, antelope, deer, and bear. It is a hunter's paradise. Here, the different tribes of Indians met on their annual hunt, and the meat was often the scene of conflict. We saw no Indian sign until we reached Little Wind River, where Evans and Russell picked up a moccasin. This was dangerous country. Hostile war parties were numerous and were liable to make their appearance at almost any hour of day or night. Williams selected a strong position for camp, as he considered this the most dangerous country on the plains, being constantly invaded by war parties of Blackfeet, Bloods, Pagans, and Crows. The trappers and Shoshones were kept constantly on the alert to avoid losing stock and even their scalps. Williams was of the opinion that the tracks discovered were made by a party of Blackfeet, as they almost always went to war on foot. Beaver and otter seemed plentiful and the men set traps. That night we slept with arms by our side ready for instant action, and kept close guard as it was almost a certainty that the Indians had discovered us and would try for our stock. Noble and I stood first guard and Evans and Russell second. About four o'clock in the morning, two shots brought us all to our feet. Immediately after the shots, we heard yell after yell from the Indians, and they began firing at the camp with guns and bows and arrows. Evans and Russell had killed two Indians with their first shots. We fired at the flashes of the Indian guns. These were Hudson Bay flintlocks and made a very decided flash when discharged. The weapon is not over-effective, but will do damage at short range. Some of our shots must have taken effect as the Indians fell back though they continued sending shots to camp until close to daylight. Several of our men, myself included, wanted to charge, but Williams would not allow it, as he considered it dangerous to charge an unknown number of Indians at night, although he had concluded that there were not more than a dozen in number, if so many. Just before daylight, the Indians attempted to recover their slain comrades. They are expert in crawling through grass, but our men were up to all their tactics and prevented them and added one more to keep company with the two already sent to their happy hunting grounds. The Indians gave a yell of despair and departed, sending after us a few parting shots. Daylight was now appearing in the east and objects could be seen at a distance. Noble and Russell lifted the hair of the three dead Indians and, as they had had some experience in scalping, it was easily accomplished. 
The method of scalping was to run the knife around the head under the hair, cutting through to the skull bone, then taking hold of the scalp lock and giving it a quick jerk. The scalp would then come off and was afterwards dried on a hoop. The reason the Mountaineers scalped Indians was in retaliation, and also because Indians dread going to their happy hunting grounds without their scalps. For this reason, they will risk a great deal to get to their slain after a battle. We discovered a trail of blood leading down the river from the place where they had fired the shots into the camp, showing that some of our return shots had been effective. Five of our ponies had been wounded, one so severely that we killed him to put him out of misery. Williams, enraged at the injury that had been done, was determined to punish the Indians still further. Leaving two men in camp, he ordered the rest to follow him. The experienced mountain man is as keen as an Indian on a trail, and no difficulty was found in following this one. About five miles down the river, a small stream put in from the north side. This stream was about two miles in length, and at its head was a spring surrounded by a small grove of quaking aspens. The Indians had gone up this stream, and we were soon close upon them. Going at a rapid rate for nearly a mile, we came to a rise, and when on top, we were within plain view of the Indians, who were hurrying along, trying to get two of their wounded comrades to the grove. They were about a half a mile in advance of us. To keep them from reaching the grove, Williams dashed to the right, where there was a level bench or prairie, so as to give our horses a chance to go at top speed. The Indians saw in a moment that they would be cut off from the grove, and they made for a patch of willows and stunted box elders just below. There were eleven of them, and we had them cornered, as the trappers say. From the brow of the hill on our side to the Indians in the willows, it was about one hundred yards, and Dockett tried a shot. The Indians returned fire, wounding him in the thigh. It was a flesh wound, but bled freely. As there were a quantity of boulders close by, Williams gave orders to roll them up to the brow of the hill for breastworks. Leaving Evans, Russell, and Dockett behind the breastwork with orders to keep shooting at the Indians, Williams told Noble and me to follow him to the grove without letting the Indians notice our departure. In the grove, we cached ourselves, although I did not understand Williams' plan. Its wisdom was soon apparent. The men on the brow of the hill kept up a steady fire and the Indians realized that they would be annihilated if they remained in their present position. Six of them made a dash for the grove, and when they came within 100 yards, William gave orders to shoot. We made a lucky shot, and three of them fell face down. The other three gave a yell of despair and ran up the hill. We mounted and dashed after them. The Indians were panic-stricken when they saw us so suddenly mounted. I now saw what Williams was in a fight. Reckless to an extreme, he dashed at the Indians who wheeled and shot but missed. A tall Indian was in advance and Williams made for him, and in a shorter time than it takes to ride it, there were three more dead Indians. Williams had identified them as Blackfeet, and this was afterwards confirmed by the Shoshones when shown the scalps. Williams now said, boy, this is your first opportunity. Lift the scalp from that buck. It belongs to you. Of course, I knew how to scalp and soon accomplished the feat, much to his satisfaction, for he said, you are broke in now. You'll do. Flattering, I thought, coming from such an old Indian fighter as he was. We went after the first three and then returned to the men at the breastwork and found them waiting for us. Many men would have left those five Indians in the willows satisfied with revenge. Not so with Williams. Some of our men told me that he was considered the hardest man on the plains to down in a fight with the Indians. He was never known to quit when once started. It was a fight to the finish. It struck me forcibly in this instance when he replied to my question of what he was going to do. He looked at me peculiar-like and said, There are five Indians down there who shot at us and insulted us. They shall have what they would have given us had they been successful in their attack. 
boy, never, if possible, let an Indian escape who has once attacked you. I was receiving a practical lesson. He now said, I want one of you to go with me. The rest of you throw some shots at the Indians while we get to that gulch and approach them from below. But these fearless trappers held Bill in too great estimation. And they all said, once, old chieftain, your orders will be disobeyed. We cannot afford to lose you. Russell said, Evans and I will undertake the job. You cover us. Down they bounded to the gulch below. Both were quick on foot with eyes like eagles. They had been in many desperate fights and understood the danger of approaching Indians in ambush. A wounded Indian is a dangerous animal when approached by an enemy. We kept up a steady fire until our men were seen to be close to the willows. Even Evans and Russell now shot and bounded forward, yelling like Indians. We also rushed down. One wounded Indian had an arrow and bow ready to shoot, but he was not quick enough. In a very short time, all was over. We found in the plunder two fine rifles, ammunition, knives, and other articles belonging to trappers. William said that some small party of trappers had been surprised by these Blackfeet, and in a few days we found that such was the case. After collecting all the plunder, we returned to camp. When Perkins saw what we brought back, he said, Well done, chieftain. Blackfeet had better give you the go-by. William smiled and answered, No better than what you would have done. Either of these men would have died for the other. As we were wolfish, a mountain phrase for hunger, we did ample justice to the feast which had been prepared. The men then went to look after the traps, and as I wanted to know all about trapping, I accompanied them. They made an excellent catch of beaver and reset the traps. I observed closely the manner of setting and baiting. This is done in different ways, according to the condition of the banks of the creek, the dams, the depth of the water, and whether there is a muddy or gravelly bottom. Trapping is a science only to be acquired through long practice. I am considered one of the best, yet I am constantly experimenting. Medicine, which is of various kinds, may be good on one river or creek, but not effective on others. To skin flesh and stretch beaver and otter is quite an art, in which many trappers never become proficient. We remained in this camp three days, and Williams was constantly on the lookout for Shoshones or trappers, climbing up on high knolls and using a spyglass. On the morning of the fourth day, we moved down Little Wind River to where it forms a junction with Big Wind River and saw no Indian signs. There is here one of the grandest and most romantic warm springs to be found on this continent. It is situated on the south side of Little Wind River, about nine miles from the mountains. Its mineral properties were unexcelled, and according to scientific men, it is the equal of any spring in what is now known as the National Park. The spring is on the Shoshone Reservation. I have been told that New York capitalists are willing to pay the government $1 million for it. The country from Owl Creek Range to the base of the Great Wind River Mountains is called Warm Land by the Indians. We stayed in this camp two days, keeping a sharp lookout especially for war parties. Here I set my first traps for beaver and caught two and one foot out of three traps set, which made me feel very proud. In those days, beaver brought from $8 to $16 a hide. Dark otter skins brought a good horse from the Indians or $10 to $12 from traders. We next moved up the river about 20 miles, scouting the country towards Owl Creek Mountains, but saw no fresh Indian sign. Here was a beautiful and strong camp, which could repel an attack from any number of Indians. Williams said that we would have to remain here until we met the Shoshones or ascertained if they had left for Green River by some other route. They avoided the plains as much as possible on account of the numerous war parties to be found there. On the fourth day at evening, a scouting party of Shoshones was discovered by Williams. I was with him and we were some distance from camp. 
Williams said Shoshone's, and I asked him how he could tell, and he answered that it was by the way they acted, which he said denoted that they were the advanced guard or scouts of a village. They always have scouts out when moving villages so as to be prepared for enemies. We galloped towards them, firing a shot. The Indians saw us and heard the shot and understood that we were friends. There were nine in the party. They were acquainted with Williams and seemed really glad to meet him. They asked him who I was and were told that I was a friend from the States. They accompanied us back to camp where we had a feast and a smoke. Their curiosity was greatly excited on seeing our captured trinkets and Williams recounted the whole circumstances of our trouble with the Blackfeet. They were the most excited Indians I have ever seen from that day to this. When shown the scalps, many of them yet stretched on hoops to dry, they jumped up and gave a ringing war whoop. These same Blackfeet had killed two trappers on Grey Bull Creek and had gotten away with five horses. Williams told the Shoshones that the Blackfeet who had attacked us had no horses. They answered that we had not seen all of them and that they had stolen seven horses from their village. According to the Shoshone statement, the war party had split, and there must have been 30 of them in all. The other Blackfeet were around, they said, and it made them uneasy. They wanted us to pack up at once and join their village. Washaki, one of the most remarkable Indians, was their chief, and he was a great friend of the whites. Williams told the Shoshones to return to their village, taking two of the Blackfeet scalps, and to notify Washaki that we were camped here and wanted to trade. They departed, saying that their village would be with us the next day. We scouted the country for quite a distance up the river, but saw nothing. It does not follow because one sees no Indians that none are about. It stood mountain men instead to constantly be on alert, Indians or no Indians. Many a poor outfit has come to grief by not taking the mountaineers' advice. We were not disturbed during the night and in morning put everything in order to receive Washaki in his village. Williams told the men that they could have all the plunder captured from the Blackfeet and that the Shoshones would pay good prices for it. He told me that I could get a good horse for my two scalps. Dockett gave me a fancy scalp saying, now young chief, you can buy a squaw. About three o'clock, Washaki, with a bodyguard of 20 men, rode into camp. It was a pleasure to see that noted chief and Williams meet. Long-parted brothers could not have been more affectionate. We soon had a feast prepared, and after a feast, a smoke. In the meantime, the village made its appearance, and lodges were put up above and below our camp. We were, in fact, corralled. The plunder was all spread on blankets, and as Indians are more acquisitive than whites, a lively trade sprung up, particularly with the women. They would give a fancy pair of moccasins for anything that had belonged to the Blackfeet. The chief's son brought a good horse and presented it to me. Anyone acquainted with Indians knows that a present from them means that you own something that they want. I soon found out that it was a scalp he wanted, and I gave it to him. He was a noble young man with the characteristics of his father. The Shoshones were delighted at my proficiency in sign language, for by this time I was able to converse on any and all subjects. It must have been very amusing to hear the many questions the women asked me. What tribe had I been raised with? Where was my woman? Had I left her? They would not believe that this was my first experience. Trade continued until dark. The Indians exchanged moccasins, beaver hides, mink, marten, and buffalo robes. Williams bought all the furs and robes from our men, paying them cash. They had no interest in our stock of goods, but were paid to accompany us. Any furs which they had caught in traps belonged to them. They were all old acquaintances of Williams and Perkins. The Indians stood guard that night, and in fact every night while we were in this section. It stood them well in hand to do so. Kalispell Indians generally paid this country a visit every spring to take a few scalps and ponies. 
The Kalispells were enemies to all Indians on the plains. When they and the Blackfeet war parties met, there was sure to be a clash, and this happened frequently. Williams and Perkins held council most all night, while scalp dances and war songs were being indulged in by all the young folks. It makes no difference with Indians whether they take the scalps or not, if only these had belonged to their enemies. I have heard people make statements to the contrary, but they knew not what they were speaking of. Hence, many false ideas originate in the minds of many well-informed Americans. The next day, Washaki gave orders to his people to bring their furs and robes and give a good trade to their friends. This they did to our satisfaction. Two mounted war parties were sent out scouting for enemies and a few to bring in meat. One of the parties met three trappers who belonged to the outfit surprised by the Blackfeet. An account of the troubles of these men will well illustrate the risk taken by trappers in collecting furs in those early days and even 30 years later. The two trappers killed were off some distance from camp looking after their traps when the Indians surprised and killed them. The other three heard the shots and hurried to camp to secure what horses they could, but the Indians were able to run off five head and also to capture the two rifles which we had retaken. Williams returned the rifles and knives to the three men. They were nervy, these three. One was a Scotsman, one a Frenchman from St. Louis, and the third came from Kentucky. They said that when they heard the shots, they were aware that their companions had been attacked, so they rushed for their horses, securing six, the Indians getting three besides and the two belonging to the dead comrades. Kentuck said that they had no opportunity to render assistance to their fellows as the Indians charged upon them. They were camped in a thick grove of cottonwoods and had prepared a breastwork for just an attack. The Indians had kept it long range, knowing that if they approached trappers' guns, some of them would come to grief. All Indians dreaded trappers when once brought to bay. Any tribe today will confirm this statement. A few shots were exchanged, and then the Indians withdrew. Kentuck was anxious to find out what had been done with the two trappers, so he climbed a high knoll and saw about 30 Indians making for the mountains. Half of them mounted. He then went down the gulch and found his two friends dead, scalped, and otherwise mutilated in a horrible manner. His eyes flashed when recounting the circumstances. The reader can well understand the just cause for trappers retaliating. Good for evil is hardly a trapper's creed when dealing with Indians. After burying the men, they packed up and started to join the Shoshones, knowing where they were camped and intending to remain with them until they reached Green River. They now joined our party. In their possession were six packs of beaver of 80 pounds each, worth $9 a pound, making a total of $4,320. There was good money in trapping, but the rewards hardly justified the risk. I found the Scotsman and the Kentuckian well-educated men. The latter presented me with a copy of Shakespeare and an ancient and modern history which he had in his pack. We had an abundance of reading matter with us. Old mountain men were all great readers. It was always amusing to me to hear people from the East speak of old mountaineers as semi-barbarians, when, as a general rule, they were the peers of the Easterners in general knowledge. These three trappers had caught a beautiful white beaver, a fur which is very rare and valuable. This they presented to Williams and would take nothing in return, saying, You keep this as a memento from us of the high esteem in which we hold you. In the afternoon, the other scouting party returned and reported that near Owl Creek Mountains, they had a good fight with a war party of Ponderos, and the two of their number were slightly wounded. These two appeared very proud of their wounds. All Indians have that weakness, showing their wounds to all and looking for smiles from their lady loves for their bravery. And I think that's a good place to wrap up today's reading of my 60 years on the plains. 
I don't know about you, but I found it interesting how Hamilton wrote of the fur traders scalping the Native Americans out of retaliation. I think if you were able to sit down and speak with a few of those Blackfeet, had any of them survived, they would have likely said the same thing, that their war parties against the Shoshone and the Mountain Men were also retaliation. Just a vicious cycle decades, if not centuries old. Remember, none of us want to be the villain in our own story. And like Johnny Cash saying in One Too Many Mornings, you're right from your side and I'm right from mine. And now I'm just rambling. By the way, don't worry, original content is coming your way very soon. I've been pretty busy lately, uh, but I will have an exciting announcement for you very shortly. Something really cool coming down the line that I just can't divulge quite yet. But yeah, all the preparations for this cool thing has got me working overtime. Thankfully, you seem to enjoy these readings from my 60 years, so that's a big help. These are relatively easy to crank out as I don't have to do all that much writing or researching. That said, I'm not just going to keep doing these until the book is complete. I'm still working on the Pat Garrett series, and I'm going to try my damnedest to release part one next Wednesday. And if there is enough of a demand, I will eventually finish my 60 years and then just keep doing similar content with other first-hand accounts. I even have the next one picked out, one from a Native American perspective. So thank you so much for listening. Thanks to everybody on Patreon and all of you who've been contributing to the calls via Buy Me a Coffee. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you're new here, check out WildWestExtra.com for more true tales from the wild and woolly west. I got a series on Billy the Kid. I got a series on the Modoc War. I got a series on Wild Bill Hickok. We recently covered Al Swearingen of Deadwood, the infamous gunfight at Jenkins Saloon, and the list goes on and on and on. WildWestExtra.com. While you're there, hit that contact button. Let me know what's on your mind. Till next time, try not to scalp anybody's penis or their hair. Instead, let's just focus on breastworks. Adios. and peckers 